This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. If you're a guest, we're really glad that you're here. Thanks for coming. My name's Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we are doing a sort of of end-of-the-year study, which will bridge into the first of next year. We'll take a little break for Christmas. But we're doing a study out of... um, the, the seven churches in Revelation, chapters 2 through 3, and Jesus specifically sends letters to seven churches um, that were undergoing very difficult times, and he uh, communicates to them, and he um, has some encouragement for each of these churches, uh, or most of them. Uh, he has some correction for some of them, and uh, he is seeking to communicate to them how to live in, a, in difficult days. And so uh, we've looked at two churches so far. The first one was the church in, in a city called Ephesus, where Jesus communicated to them that they had done a great job uh, believing sound doctrine and holding up true teaching and rejecting false teachers. Uh, but the problem was the church was so oriented towards truth that they had really ceased to be loving, loving towards one another and loving towards Jesus. And so really, in a pursuit of truth and what's right and drawing lines of separation between truth and error, they had sort of grown crusty in their hearts and brittle and dry, and he was calling them to return to their first love. Last week, we looked at a church in a city called Smyrna, and this was a church that was enduring Uh, difficulty, and it was about to get worse. Jesus actually told them that some people in their church would be thrown in prison for a short amount of time and certainly implied that they would be killed for their faith. And so to this church, he wrote uh, to press on and to continue on, and he held in front of them this, uh, this future that awaited them, this glory that awaited them as they persevered. And today we're going to look at the church at Pergamum. And in each of these churches, there are things for us to learn uh, from his evaluation of the churches. The church we're going to look at today has by far sort of the most dense, um, dense communication in it. There's a lot of things mentioned here that are uh, 2,000 years old or older. Some of it goes back to the Old Testament. So I'm going to need to do some work and ask you to pay attention. I'm going to need to do some work explaining some things that aren't as easily accessible. But if we can work our way through some of these things that aren't as easily accessible to us, uh, it'll be worthwhile because we'll, there's a great message to this church. So let's, let's read the church in Pergamum, beginning in verse 12 of Revelation 2. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, 
And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for your church and your love for these particular churches that you addressed some 2,000 years ago. And we pray this morning that you'd bridge the gap between their world and our world and you would help us understand and benefit from what you said to them. Lord, we pray that you would speak to each of us, speak to our lives, uh, speak to our church and where we are as a community and as a family, and that you would, uh, Lord, that you would warn us through this text where warning is necessary. You would encourage us through this text where you're speaking encouragement. And Lord, we pray that we would be able to just embrace what you said to them as it applies to us so that we might glorify you. Lord, that's our desire. We want to be a people that honor you and uh, love you and serve you and make much of you. So Lord, I pray today that as I preach, you'd empower me to make much of you, to honor you. Give us all ears. Lord, this verse says, uh, this verse says to him uh, who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, open our ears that we could hear what you're saying to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to jump right into this one. We've broken in uh, each church kind of into two things. Christ's evaluation of the church. What does he say about the church? And then his exhortation to the church. What does he tell the church to do? What does he say about them? And what does he tell them to do? Well, here's what we learn about his evaluation of the church. First of all, he understands their environment. This is really important. He understands their environment. Look at verse 13. I know where you dwell. And then he says some kind of unusual things. You dwell where Satan's throne is. And then if you look at the end of verse 13, he says, where Satan dwells. So he starts off with saying, I understand your city. I get it. I get where you live. I understand your environment. That's the first thing that he says. Now, this is interesting because to the Ephesian church, he said, I know your works. I know what you do. And uh, I understand your endurance. I know what you've put up with. So he, he commented to the Ephesians, I know how you live and what you've done and how you've endured. Um, to the Smyrnan church, to the church of Smyrna, he, he wrote to them that he knows their tribulation. I know that you're being slandered. I know that you're poor, that you folks are poor. He says, I, so I know that. But to the church at Pergamum, he some, says something else. I know your environment. I know your city. I know the spiritual sort of nature of your town. He wants them to know that he understands that they live where Satan's throne is. Now, it is hard to imagine a more difficult place to live for Jesus than Pergamum. Because he's saying Satan himself, who's not omnipresent, that is, Satan's not everywhere at once as God is by the Holy Spirit. Satan's located. He he is a created being. He is not everywhere present at once. And at least at this point of, of this writing, he's saying he lives in your town. Talk about there goes the neighborhood. The devil lives in your town. We we talk about different towns having a characteristic. You know, Las Vegas is called Sin City. Pergamum is called, Pergamum means citadel, by the way. The word means citadel. It means fortress. So the message of Pergamum is you're the citadel of the devil. I mean, this is really serious where they live. No matter what kind of pressure we feel like we're facing, 
uh, to live for Christ. It wasn't Pergamum for sure. And so he knows their city. He knows that there's darkness over it. So how is the reign of Satan demonstrated in Pergamum? Well, there's probably a couple ways. One is that uh, just like we talked about last week in Smyrna, there was uh, enforced emperor worship, and it was strong in Pergamum. So everyone in Pergamum was required uh, on an annual basis to make an offering to the emperor and to confess with his mouth, Caesar is Lord. To communicate that it's not just your president or your prime minister or your czar, your Caesar, your emperor. He is a god. So everyone had to do that. Christians would only say that Jesus is Lord. So that put them in trouble. So certainly Satan ruled in that way. But it's interesting. The, uh, there were a number of gods in Pergamon. There was a huge temple to Zeus in their city that was up on a hill like 800 feet. Elevated this massive temple to Zeus that almost looked throne-like. But the god of Pergamum, the, the, the chief god of Pergamum was a god called Asclepius, I think is how you pronounce it. And his, uh, Asclepius' symbol was a snake. He was referred to as the savior. And uh, he had the power to heal. So if you've ever seen the medical symbol with the pole and the snake around it, that's Asclepius, the Greek god who had the power to heal. And so that, that, that is their God over their city. So the, the very false God that ruled over them, that promised to be a savior, that promised healing powers was a snake, a serpent representing um, evil. So certainly Satan dwelt and, and lived out his reign through false gods all over the ancient world, but theirs in particular was called the savior, Asclepius the serpent. And so to them, for Jesus to say, I know where you dwell, has to be a great comfort. And I think it's a great comfort for us as as well. There is huge difference between Frisco and Pergamum. There are lots of differences. I'll not begin to enumerate them. I'm sure by my description of the city, you can figure out some of the differences. But the big similarity that I think is key for us to understand is that while in the other passages... Jesus says, I know what you believe, and I know what you're doing, uh, and I know what you're experiencing. Here he says, I get the world around you. And that's really important for us to know that Jesus understands our world. Jesus understands the darkness that faces you. And while you may be in a different situation than Pergamum, we all have darkness around us. And when we face difficulty and darkness, sometimes we can wonder, does God even care? Does God know that I'm going through this? Does God even care that I'm experiencing this? God knows the darkness you face. God knows the darkness in your family. He's, I, some of us live in difficult family circumstances. And the Lord says to you, I know exactly what it's like in your marriage that is crumbling, that is on the brink, and no one knows. I know, Jesus says to you this morning. I know the pain that you're going to experience when you gather around with family over the holiday at Thanksgiving on Thursday, and I know the painful memories of what you experienced and maybe still experience in that family. I know that. I know the environment. I know the resistance. I know how it feels dark and hopeless. I know the darkness in your soul that brings loneliness and depression. You may not live in the city where Satan dwells, but you feel an oppressive darkness of loneliness 
and emptiness in your heart at times, and I know where you live. Jesus knows what that is about. I I was going to spend a sentence on this, and I've already given two paragraphs on this, Uh, but I felt this morning when I was praying that, that there's someone here or a group of us that need to know specifically that Jesus wants you to know that just in Pergamum, that he says the same to you. He knows the darkness you're facing, the relational resistance you're experiencing, the persecution, the exclusion that you're experiencing, the loneliness the depression, maybe even a sense of despair in your soul that literally feels like a dark cloud over you, he knows that, and he cares, and he's speaking to you about it this morning, that he is the God who sets free, sets you free from the darkness that seeps to encounter. He is the light in the darkness that Jesus knows, that he said he was among these churches. He wanted each of these churches. He said, each church is like a lampstand, and I'm in amongst the lampstands. He's telling each church, I'm with you. I'm there. I want you to know he's making evaluation while he's there and he's bringing correction and calling them to repent, which is a very loving thing for him to do. And he's also saying, I'm with you in in more in a mean of comfort and support. And so these who have suffered in Satan's city, I get your environment. This is very unusual, but I specifically felt impressed to say that, 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 to, to mention that there may be someone here who is cutting You're cutting yourself in darkness and in pain, and the Lord knows, and the Lord is with you, and the Lord cares for you, and the Lord wants to set you free from the rage that is in your soul. Maybe it's a numbness that you just want to feel something. Maybe it's it's an anger. Whatever it is, the Lord knows and wants to set you free. So whatever your darkness, whatever your opposition, maybe it doesn't feel like just some you know, demonized darkness. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's your limitations, your weaknesses, your difficulties. We think other people don't live with this. Does anybody else here even know what I go through? And and sometimes we take it one step further. Nobody, my family doesn't get what I go through. My church doesn't get what I go through. My work mates, people I work with, they have no idea what I go through. What I want you to know is Jesus knows where you dwell. He knows where you live. He knows the darkness around you. And he is a light in the darkness. And he doesn't always remove us from dark circumstances. He didn't Pergamum. He didn't say, hey, guess what? Here's the plan. Satan's dwelling there. You know, so meet me in the corner at 8 a.m. We got a bus. We're all going to another city to avoid the darkness. He doesn't pull them out of the darkness. Rather, he communicates to them, I know the darkness. I know what you're facing. And he is with them. He knows the temptations that are there because he faced Satan face to face in temptation in the wilderness. And when Satan brought temptation to yield to his power, uh, Jesus defied the devil at every step. He said no in our place. He resisted the temptation in our place. And then he died and rose in our place to defeat the power of darkness so that his children, his family, his people could live amidst the darkness, not having to escape the darkness, but bearing his light in the darkness, experience his, his presence in the darkness, knowing his nearness, even when the temptation is to despair and give up, he is there. And that's what he's saying to the church. You live where Satan dwells. He used the word dwell twice. I know where you dwell, verse 13, end of verse 13. It starts with, I know where you dwell. The verse closes with where Satan dwells. You live where Satan is, but the communication is, I know that and I'm with you. And the Lord wants you to know he knows your environment. 
this is important. Um, Sometimes it's easy to think that it's all about my response to my circumstances. That's all that matters. That really, it's not the circumstances that matter, it's just my response. And the illustration goes like this. Your life is a sponge, and when the pressures of life squeeze you in the sponge, what's inside of you comes out. And what's inside of you that comes out that's ugly, you need to repent of that, you need the power of Christ to change you, but that's the focus, is what's squeezed out of you. It's not the circumstance, it's what the circumstance reveals about you. That's a biblical idea. But that can be imbalanced because Jesus doesn't just say, it's just what in you that matters. Jesus says, the circumstance matters to me as well. And it is ultimately our response to the circumstance by the power of Christ to enable us to repent and to trust him. That makes all the difference, but it's not as if the circumstances we're in don't matter. It's not as if Jesus says, I don't care what you're going through. Live for me. He says, I know exactly what you're going through. And he articulates it in some detail. Our response to circumstances and the pressures and the darkness is what's determinative of our life. It's not the, it's not the circumstances, but the circumstances matter. The squeeze matters. And Jesus cares about the squeeze, and he wants us to know he cares about what squeezes us, and he wants to compassionately know us know that he's with us in it. He knows where we dwell. Secondly, he understands their environment. Secondly, he commends their faithfulness. They, they live in an environment where the two of the big names, three of the big names would be Zeus, Asclepius, and the Caesar's name, probably Domitian at this time. So Domitian is Lord, they would say. So those are names in their environment. But look what he says to them. He commends their faithfulness. Verse 14. I ha- uh, I'm verse 13. I'm sorry. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith or faith in me, the, the, uh, the, the footnote says, my faith or the faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So he said, there's this pressure, you live where Satan lives, there's this pressure to hold fast to other names, but you've held fast to my name. And I'm recognizing that. You've you've held on to me. You've held on to me even when it was costly. Back in the day of Antipas, we have no idea who Antipas is, but he's a guy from this church, evidently, who's a faithful witness who was killed among you. The Greek word that we get witness from is the same word we get martyr from. It's it's the same word. And so uh, his witness meant, witness in some ways meant costing your life in that day. It It was giving your life. It was dying for your faith. So this guy Antipas... Uh, is the church is pressured and he dies. He stays faithful. He confesses Jesus to the point of death. And uh, I know that about you. He represents days, in the days of Antipas. So there was this previous season, days, period of time where at least one guy, if not more, were being killed. Maybe he was the most notable martyr. But being killed for taking a stand for Jesus. It was a city that was hostile against the faith such that people actually lost their life for their faith, and that's what a witness is. He was a faithful witness. So the summary, what does he know? What does he commend? The church at Pergamum is a group of believers who've remained faithful, living under the throne of Satan in their city, who sought to extinguish their witness. He, he sought to put out their light, but he did not, that, that because they were faithful and stood strong against attack, even when it cost them so, someone their life. Even when it meant saying a Christian could mean you die for your faith, 
They were that faithful. So he commends this church. It's tremendous. Tremendous faith in this church. However, he also brings a critique. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you. I have a few things against you. Now, he said the same thing in Ephesus. He said, I have something against you. Jesus is for them. He loves them. He saved them. But he can be for us and have something against us. There can be something in our lives something in our church, something about our life that, that opposes him, that, that displeases him, and that's what he's talking about here. He loves them, but he has, he's for them. I know, but he has something against them. What does he have against them? Okay, I'm going to break this down uh, because there's two groups of people here, and there's two kinds of teaching, or at least there's two kinds of teaching being referenced that I think are one and the same. So let me walk, if you're new to the Bible, let me walk you through this. This is, gonna be, this is some new for all of us, even if we're not new to the Bible, because most of us have never heard of the Nicolaitans. But this is, some of this is in the Old Testament, so I want to walk it through. He says, I have a few things against you, verse 14. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. So there's a guy named Balaam we need to know about, who taught Balak, we need to know Balak, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Sexual immorality would be defined as sexual activity with someone uh, not your spouse, sex outside of marriage. So they practice sexual immorality, verse 15. So also you have some there who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So, so also... So whatever the Nicolaitans are teaching in the New Testament is like what this guy Balaam taught in the Old Testament. Balaam's an Old Testament figure in the book of Numbers. Sometimes people say, oh, the book of Numbers, that's really a boring book. The book of Numbers has got some, I mean, some hardcore stuff. And the book of Numbers is pretty amazing. And the story of Balaam is amazing. And this is what he's talking about. Whatever Balaam did is so we also have the Nicolaitans doing, and that's what's happening in the church, which is leading to eating food, sacrifice to idols, and uh, practicing sexual immorality. So who is this guy Balaam? Well, in Numbers 22 through 24, here's what we find. The people of Israel are in um, in the plains of Moab, and they're about to cross into the promised land. And uh, so the king of Moab doesn't want the Israelites to take his, his land, his people. He doesn't want to be defeated by them. So here's what the king of Moab, who's named Balak. So here's what Balak does. He finds a prophet named Balaam, and he says, I will hire you, which is questionable. Any prophet who'll do something for money, that's questionable. I will hire you. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to speak a curse on the people of Israel so they don't defeat me. Moab. That's what Balak says. So he hires this guy, Balaam, who is a pretty sorry fellow. We, we find out he is a sorry guy. And he hires this guy named Balaam. And uh, he says, I'm going to, I'll pay you say because he believed if you speak a curse over Israel, they'll lose and I'll win the battle. So Balaam, it's a very involved story. It's the one where Balaam's donkey actually talks to him and it is, it is wild. But here's what happens. When Balaam tries to speak something against and tries to curse Israel, instead a blessing comes out of his mouth, like against his, I guess against his will, kind of divine ventriloquism. And he speaks, he speaks a blessing. So he's supposed to, he's hired, he's going to, he's collecting a paycheck to curse them, and he speaks his blessing. God's going to do these great things for you. It's like, oh, man. And so it happens several times. 
And then after those three chapters where he cannot do it, this is the next thing we read. It's very unusual, but the next thing we read uh, right after that happens is chapter 25 of Numbers, after the Balaam-Balak thing. And what we read is, quote, Numbers 25, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate, so they ate to the gods, Baal was the main god, and they bowed down to their gods, so Israel yoked, that means connected, themselves to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. It's really unusual. What you read is you just have this, I can't curse, I've got to say a blessing, and then all of a sudden, literally, the women of Moab, so they're trying to curse so your warriors don't come in and defeat us. So the women of Moab go, literally start uh, seducing, hooking up with the men of Israel, and then they invite them over to worship their God. So they're being sexually immoral with them. They're calling them to worship Baal. The worship of Baal involved eating and sexual immorality, and that's what they're doing. And so then God judges the people, his own people. That's what happens in Numbers. And then when you get to Numbers 31, there's one verse, and here's what you find out. That bad guy, Balaam, who tried to curse but could only bless, he's the one who told King, the King Balak, here's what you should do. The cursing thing's not working. Get your women to go seduce the men. That will work. So what he does is he says, if we can't win from an outside attack speaking this curse, we'll cause them to compromise from the inside. We can't curse from the outside. You dress your women up seductively. You get them over there. You get the eye of the men. You lead them into sexual immorality and say that part of the sexual immorality is worshiping Baal, which it is. Get them involved in that, and God will judge them. In other words, you will affect them from the inside. You can't get them from the outside, but you can get them from the inside. And we find out that guy Balaam is the one who told the king, that's what you should do, and that's what he did, and it worked. Now, Jesus is saying, you have some people in your church, the Nicolaitans, that are like Balaam. What does that mean? It means that Satan is attacking the church from the outside. We're going to kill Antipas. We're going to force you to to confess to false gods. And if you don't, we're going to kill you. But that didn't work. That didn't work. The church stood strong. The church worshiped Jesus. He said, good job. So what now? Satan is going to go from the inside. And he's going to have some people in the church called the Nicolaitans, or at least there's some teaching called the Nicolaitans, and what they do leads to sexual immorality and idolatry, just like what happened with Balaam. And so this is, this is where they are. This is the problem in the church, that they're being allowed to stay in the church. So how in the world, I mean, think about a church. How in the world could someone be in the church and say, hey, it's no problem to worship other gods, and to have sex with whomever you want outside of marriage. That's not a problem. How did that happen among people who say, I'll die for Jesus? Where's there a church where people are dying for Jesus and also listening to people in the church saying, it's okay to worship other gods and commit sexual immorality? How does that work? Well, it happened because of their culture. We see this throughout the New Testament. The, the culture of that day was broadly uh, pagan, worshiping many gods. And not only was it worshiping many gods... But the church of that day was very immoral. Uh, the, the standards, we feel like the standards, uh, conservative biblical Christians feel like the standards of sexuality in our culture are eroding quickly. And while that may be true, it does not compare to the sexual standards of the first century. 
They were far looser, and we may be moving towards that, I don't know, but they were far looser than even our standards would be in this culture. They were promiscuous, they wouldn't even, chastity or faithfulness, sexual faithfulness in a a marriage, that just was not even part of the culture. It was just unusual. And so they're in this culture that worships a lot of gods, and it was instituted, there was sexual sin instituted in the religion. So here's how it would work. You find out about this in in 1 Corinthians. Here's how it would work. Uh, uh, If someone goes to the pagan temple, there's lots of temples around. Here's what happened in the temple. You bring a sacrifice to the God of the temple. Uh, They burn some of your meat in sacrifice. They give the priest some of the meat. They give you some of the meat, and you host a party. This is what happened. And it would happen uh, under certain gods. It also happened in the what we might call unions. It happened among the trade guilds. So all the, I don't know what they had, the stonemasons. The stonemasons guild would say, we're, we're going to have a sacrifice uh, down at so-and-so temple. And you would bring everybody, they, all your friends, invite your friends and th- the other stonemasons you worked with, or it could be an, an individual. You bring your family members. We're all getting down to the pagan temple and we're going to have a sacrifice. I'm providing the animal. We're going to have a sacrifice, and we're going to have a party. People didn't eat as much meat then as we do, so it was a big party when you sacrificed an animal in the temple. Now, here's the thing. This was not Aunt Edna's uh, church potluck dinner down at the temple. This is a loose environment. So what happens is they have the, uh, and I won't be graphic here, but they, have, they sacrifice the animal, and then it's a big feast, lots of alcohol, drunkenness, and out-of-control immorality. That's the environment. That's what happens at the temple. And it's even viewed as a, as a means of worship to the gods. So it's even sanctioned as religious. That's what's happening in the world. And we see this being addressed in Corinth. Paul addresses this in Corinth. And so the problem in the church is what? There's people eating food sacrificed to idols and practicing sexual immorality. Now, if, a, if some meat was sacrificed and then sold at the market, you could eat it. You go down and buy some brisket at Kroger, it may say Nolan Ryan on it, okay? In the first century, it would say, at the market, there's meat hanging, it would say, sacrifice to Zeus. Not Nolan Ryan, but Zeus. And so the Bible says, go eat the Zeus meat. It does not matter. Go get the meat. There is no Zeus. He's a fake God. Go home, eat your brisket, have a barbecue, enjoy life. Wonderful. But it's very different to go into the temple and eat meat, sacrificed to an idol. So, What's happening? Paul's saying you can't go do that in 1 Corinthians. Evidently, the Nicolaitans were saying in their culture, it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. We know not bought at the market, but in their environment. So somebody's saying it's okay to go down to the temple. And you can imagine why that would be. Hey, all the guys after work were all going down for a party at the temple. All the guys in the whatever you are, a computer programmer guild, okay? So the computer programmer guild is going to go down to the temple and they're going to eat a sacrifice because so-and-so is offering a sacrifice and then we all know what happens after that. Or the family's going to go down. And you can hear how this would work. Well, why wouldn't you join your family? Don't you want to be with your family? Why aren't you trying to reach out to your coworkers? Why wouldn't you be with your coworkers? Don't you want to be with your coworkers? Yes. When they're clothed, yes. And when they're sober, yes, but not in that environment. Not in that. I can't be in that environment. But doesn't grace say it doesn't matter what you do? Aren't you saved by what Jesus did, not by what you do? I mean, aren't, isn't it all about Jesus? Isn't it all about grace? 
Doesn't the Bible say your sins are forgiven past, present, and future? Can't you go to the temple and at least hang out with the stonemasons, the computer programmers, or your family who's down there offering? Can't you do that as long as in your heart you don't really worship that God? As long as in your heart you're not thinking about that God, isn't it okay? Doesn't Jesus, can't you just pray like silently? Can't you just pray to Jesus silently in that other temple? And you know, when the meat comes along, just eat a lot, but every bite you just think about Jesus. And can't you just do that? I mean, it's about grace. Don't we care about, you don't, you're not going to go with your family. Don't we care about our family? How are you going to reach your boss if you're not at his sacrifice Friday night? And the problem is that when that starts happening in the church and people in the church become indistinct from people in the world, that's the problem. The problem in Pergamum is there are people in the church who say, we will die for Jesus. There's other people in the church, we, we, we want to be tolerant of their view of grace. We want to be tolerant of them. We want to, oh, we don't want to, we don't want to oppose what they are saying. See, the big battle all over the New Testament and for us today is what does it mean to be in the world, but not of the world? And there's two extremes that we must avoid. One is out of the world, a cloistered Christianity where everything is Christian. All my friends are Christian. All my relationships are Christian. I only listen to Christian music, watch Christian movies, play Christian sports with other Christian sports people. I only go to Christian businesses or whatever. I, if a fish isn't on the card, I don't do it. I just, Christian, every, my whole world is dominated just with Christians. I don't talk to non-Christians very much. At least I don't make friends with them. I just avoidance. That is a satanic attack that seeks to get the church cloistered so its light cannot shine. That's not Pergamum. The satanic attack in Pergamum is the other way because the, the, the enemy can destroy the church's witness either way. Just all be together and have no contact with the world. No contact with the world. Or the other one is be, so that's be out of the world. In the world, but not of. Out of the world, but not of the world. What they're talking here is be in the world and of the world as well. So what's happening in Pergamum is just go a part of the world, be a part of them. Y yeah, some people start slipping and doing what the world, and they're completely indistinct from the world. They're not a light in the darkness. Why? Because they're acting like darkness. You can't see a testimony of light because they look dark. You can't see it. There's nothing different about their life than the world's life. The person over here, their life might look different than the world, but no one in the world sees it. They take their light and they, they take their lamp and they put a blanket over it, is essence what Jesus says. They put a blanket over it so nobody can see. Yes, you're, you're different, you're distinct, but who knows? Over here, you're not different, you're not distinct, you're exactly like, and this grieves God. He brought significant judgment in, uh, to the people of Israel in the Balaam-Balak deal, and the Nicolaitans are doing the exact same thing. I have this against you. You have teaching that, that, so where people are eating food sacrificed to idols, which meant temple involvement and sexually immoral, which meant temple involvement, which meant living like the culture with no distinction from the culture. And the church in the New Testament, this is one of the big challenges, had a very different sexual ethic than the culture. And the church today in America has a very different sexual ethic than the culture. And this is a place that we are to be a light in the darkness, a loving light, not standing up on a hill, pointing fingers judgmentally as if we never sin or could never sin, 
But we are to draw a line where Jesus draws the line about sexual purity. I want to address this in the next year and do some teaching on this specifically. But we must draw a line. We must be distinct. We must be a light in the darkness because we're faithful to our marital vows. Physically, mentally, in our heart, with regarding pornography or flirtation, uh, flirtatious interactions with the opposite sex or being in compromising situations or whatever. We want to we draw up, we want to be distinct in our marriages so that our sexuality is expressed solely uh, in the context of our marriage and not being given into other. And we want to ensure that, our, that we serve Jesus only and that, that we're not caught up in the idols of the age like they were in Pergamum. And our idols aren't called Zeus. They're not called Asclepius. We're not all going down looking at the snake god, trying to get a healing and then getting drunk and, and doing whatever. We're not doing that kind of stuff. But we can chase, we can chase other gods uh, just as easily, the gods that surround our world, which, um, uh, which we are to repent of as he speaks of here. They are to repent. I want to move to that. That's his exhortation to the church. So that's, that's his, uh, what I've been talking about is what's going on in the church. What is the problem? Uh, what is the problem at Pergamum? What is his evaluation? They are compromising, and he corrects their compromise. So the enemy will seek to snuff out the church in two ways. Absolute avoidance, so that there is no testimony, or assimilation, so that there is no testimony. Either way, the people of God aren't shining the light of Christ to those who need him. See, Jesus says, what's his exhortation to them? Look what he says in verse 16. Therefore, repent. Repent. They should have been like the Ephesians. The Ephesians, up in chapter 2, same chapter, verse 6, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's Jesus. Jesus says, I hate what they're doing to my church. They did not hate. They tolerated. They had them in the church. And he's telling them to repent. They must discipline this teaching. They must discipline these individuals that would be advocating a type of living in the world with, with moral compromise and with the worship of other idols so that there's no distinction. They must repent of that. Now, here's what I find very interesting. You would expect him to say to the elders of the church, discipline these people. Uh, Give them a chance to repent and renounce their teaching, and if they don't, kick them out. So he says, he says to the whole church, repent. So the leaders are to avoid this, but the people in the church are as well. So that when the Nicolaitans post a link on their Facebook page, you're not supposed to click on it and go look at their false teaching that says, look at what you could be experiencing over here if you were really free or whatever they're saying, however they were promoting their, their teaching. Um, why are they lax? Why, why? This is the biggest mystery. I've been chewing on this all week. The biggest mystery is why would someone die for their faith and let this be in the church at the same time? It's just, it's, it's a mystery. They could be so serious, more serious, um, more serious than most of us. And yet they would allow this other. Why is that? Well, I think there's a, there's a pressure there that they could feel. I, I'm speculating a bit right here because the text doesn't say why they were lax. But if I look at my own life and people, you know, that I know and am, am close with, I, I just think I could see that there can sometimes be a temptation to seek to be understanding and seek to be tolerant. 
I'm not advocating intolerance in a sort of self-righteous sort of way, but I'm advocating a biblical intolerance that does say there's one way to Jesus. We express that with a heart for others, and we express that winsomely, but we express that definitively, that there's Jesus alone. But there can be a temptation to be tolerant of those who had a different understanding, perhaps of grace, uh, so that it led to license. That's what they really were. Maybe they thought that was loving. You know, we're trying to love these people. We're trying to love them. We don't want to correct what they're doing. And Jesus says, I hate what they're doing. I hate what they're doing. I hate what Balaam did. He sought to defeat the people of God by bringing compromise to the inside. And I hate that because that destroys the people. Uh, Jesus would say it destroys the people he died for. It destroys them. It destroys his witness. It destroys his reputation. It destroys his honor and his fame among others. So maybe they were just trying to be loving. You know, Ephesus got corrected because they were truth without love. And to some degrees, these guys could be love without truth. Love without truth. That could be the problem that's going on here. Maybe they didn't want to be viewed as intolerant. Maybe, maybe, they, maybe they thought this would cause division. Wow, we've just gone through a season where people got killed, at least one guy, got killed. Now, I think the last thing we want to do, broken up and weak as we are, is start expelling people from the church and bringing division. Really, can't we all just be together here and uh, sort of rest uh, after the difficulty? The whole culture is against us. Do we really want to start a fight in the church by correcting the Nicolaitans? I mean, every, we're, in the, we're in the synagogue, I mean, I'm sorry, we're under the throne of Satan. Do we really want to start fighting among ourselves? And yet, Jesus hated their works, and they needed to be dealt with. We're already a despised minority. Do we want to even weaken what we have? Well, it would have strengthened what they have. If they do not take a stand for Jesus, this is what he says. Um, I'm sorry, if they do not correct the Nicolaitans. Verse 16, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So he's going to bring, that's judgment. Sword of his mouth is the scripture. He's going to judge them. I'm going to come and bring a judgment to them. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What is the Spirit saying to the churches? That the church is to um, live for Christ as the church at Pergamum did and not advocate practices of idolatry and sexual immorality that cause the church to blend in and look just like the culture that surrounds it. There to be, there's to be distinction at the right points Uh, so that there is a light in the darkness. There's a lot of similarities between people in the church and people in the culture. There's a lot of places to build bridges, and there's places to erect walls and not bridges. And sexual immorality is a wall, and worshiping other gods is a wall. And we're not going to bridge over, he's saying, we're not going to bridge over to the drunken, um, uh, you know, sexually immoral party uh, where the folks in the culture are living and do what they do. There must be, must not be lax in that area, is what he's saying. So that's what happens. Repent. Repent from failing to be salt and light. Repent from looking just like your surrounding culture. Repent from being in the world and of the world. It just makes me think, well, none of us live in Pergamum, but we all have our temptations to compromise, don't we? We all have our temptations. So where is God calling you to live distinctly? Not distinctly for distinction's sake, just to be different, but to follow Christ. Where is love of Christ and following Christ? Where is Christ calling us to be distinct? What are the practices around you that the Lord says you should look different? Maybe it's on your job. 
Maybe your practices, maybe you're in sales and the way you present your product and the way you communicate in honesty, maybe that is distinct. Maybe that you will stand out distinctly. Hey, just go, everybody else, you don't have to tell them that. You don't have to explain that. So maybe there's deception. There's a temptation for deception or just sort of fudging a little bit. Maybe that's the temptation where you are to be just like everyone else. This is what everyone else in my company does, and they get by with it. Why would I want to be any different? Or maybe it's consumerism. Maybe it's consumerism. I mean, if, if people, some people, sometimes people wouldn't know this, but if people knew exactly how I s- spent my money, for instance, would the spending of my money look just like the culture around me? Would there be any distinction? Would, there be disti- would, would the way I handle the resources give me, would I be salt and light? Would I be in the world but not of the world, or would I be in the world and uh, of it as well? Just like, is there distinction in the way I steward what the Lord's resources have been given to me? Christians should be different than the culture in that way. Maybe it's entertainment. Is, is my entertainment lifestyle any different than someone who doesn't know Jesus? Is, his, is, is my conscience awakened at any point where I say, I, I, I have to draw a line there in my conscience in terms of what's honoring the Lord? Is there any difference in, in the way I relate to others and my friendships? Do my friendships look just like the world's? Or, do I have, or, or am I representing Christ in some way in my friendships? Loving, serving, caring for others, but am I somehow a light in the darkness? Maybe it's in your relationships. Maybe it's your sexual ethics. Maybe you say, well, I'm not sleeping around or something like that, like they were doing and like was part of their culture, but is there a distinction? Sometimes people won't even know, but the Lord knows and your conscience knows and your ability to follow the Lord knows. So maybe in your private thought life or on your computer, is your, is your, are your sexual ethics different because of Christ and his power? Are they different than the culture? Or are you looking at the same things, thinking the same things, speaking the same way? Or is there a distinction in the way you approach sexuality? That's an idol of our age. Um, is there a distinction in the way you parent? The way you're cho- is, do, I, do, I, am I, do I look just like a parent who doesn't know Christ? Or maybe you're a young person. Do you relate to your parents differently than people who don't know Christ do? Is there a distinction? Not distinction for distinction's sake, but distinction because you love Christ and you want to honor him. And that means the way you relate to your parents. In our marriage, if you're married, is the way I treat my spouse, the way that people in the culture, are there some distinctions? Am I representing Christ and his love for the church? So whether it's our work, our entertainment, our friendships, our sexuality, whatever it is, we're, dis- we're called to be different. We're called to be distinct following Jesus. We're called to be a people that someone at some point could come against us and say, if living for Jesus means you lose your life, then I'm a candidate for martyrdom like Antipas was? Or would the Nicolaitans look so much like the world that the, they, they would never seek to martyr a Nicolaitan? What's the difference? I don't see any difference in him or her than I do the Christian. So in, a, in that world, they're calling for distinction and for us as well. So there's a call to repent wherever that might exist in our heart. And then there's a promise to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I'm going to need to wrap up here. One, one who conquers, I will give hidden manna. And I'll give him a stone with a new name on it. Uh, the hidden manna, uh, that was God's provision for the people in the wilderness, going back to the previous story. 
So that's probably a type of Christ, that Jesus is the bread of life. He talks about this in John. Jesus sustains us. Christ will give us himself. For the person who conquers, the person who follows him, we will have Christ, and he is more than enough. So what does Jesus give us in the darkness? What does Jesus give us in the pressure? What does Jesus give us when the world is squeezing us and saying, be just like us, and the Nicolaitans say it's okay, by the way? When, when that is happening, what, is, what do we have? We have Christ, and he's more than enough. He's the hidden manna that feeds his people. And I will give him a stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What does that mean? Well, I'm not entirely sure what that means. There's several options um, Here's one option. I can't tell you definitively. One option is that a white stone in that day recommended, uh, uh, represented a ticket uh, of admission to a festival or a royal assembly, assembly or something like that. So Jesus may be saying, I will give you, in essence, a a ticket to the messianic banquet. I, I have something awaiting you. The white stone with your name, I have you chosen and you invited to an eternity with me that is way beyond what you're experiencing here. So what's the promise when the squeeze is on? Jesus promises, I know where you are and I'm manna to feed you. I am more than enough for you one day at a time. Jesus is all that we need. That's what he's saying and I have a glorious future for you. As a matter of fact, you have a ticket. You have a way. You have an invitation. You will be with me forever. He gives them, all of these churches, a future promise. When the heat is on, we find Jesus in the present and we long for Jesus for eternity. That's the promise. The book of Revelation shows on and on the rule and reign of Jesus, the destruction of evil, the casting of Satan and his followers into the lake of fire, and the welcoming of the people of God to the new heaven and the new earth. He is reversing the effects of the fall, everything that was lost in the Garden of Eden through sin. He is making new again, and he's letting his people know in the book of Revelation that it may not look like this on the outside, but if you could peel back the curtain, what you would see is Jesus reigning over evil. So resist the temptation. He knows he is with you. He will sustain you and he will return for you one day and you will experience glory indescribable. So press on. That's what he's saying to the church at Pergamum. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.